Thank you, brother. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Please open up to Romans chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. The title of the sermon this morning is Our Marvelous Salvation. And once you're there, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So starting in verse 21, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Timothy, my, co- <clears throat> my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sospiter, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, come before you this morning, and we ask you to be with us as we go through your text, as we seek to understand your word, Lord, the word that you have for us. I pray, God, that you would give us the eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. I pray, God, you'd remove me as much as possible from this. Lord, there's just so much good stuff in your word always. And so, Lord, it's our prayer that today you will make your people, those who already call on your name, that we will be more like Jesus, that we will be those who serve because we're empowered to serve by the great salvation you've given us. We also pray for those who, don't, who do not yet know you, that today as they hear your word proclaimed, as they hear the gospel preached, God, that you would save them according to your eternal command. And we just pray, Lord, in everything that you would be glorified and magnified. And again, don't let me mess up your word, maybe your word going to your people. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray all this to you, God the Father. Amen. Please have a seat. So exactly two years ago today, I started preaching the book of Romans, and we're going to finish it today. So I didn't plan for it to be exactly two years, that just happened, but this morning we finished the book of Romans, and as I reflect on this book, this is probably the most reasoned and theologically rich letter in the New Testament. Chapters 1 through 3 showed us that everyone needs a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Chapter 4 showed us that we are justified or saved by faith, not by works. Chapters 5 through 7 showed us that salvation takes us out of Adam and out of slavery to sin, and it places us in Christ and sets us free from sin. Chapter 8 showed us that we still live in this huge battle, and while this life is such a huge battle, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of us, and because of that, we will make it to the finish line. Chapters 9 through 11 showed us that God will keep all of his promises to Israel. Everything that he laid down in the Old Testament, the full direction in which his plan is going, it's still going to get there. And if God keeps his promises to Israel, then you could trust he will keep his promises to you as well. Chapters 12 and 13 taught us that salvation changes or transforms our entire life. We now live for our king. Chapters 14 and 15 taught us that our common salvation should produce unity in the church. And of course, all that I just said there, these are just tiny, tiny summaries of what these chapters revealed to us. 
I bring them up right now at the beginning of the sermon only to remind us of how great of a book the book of Romans truly is. And so personally, I'm glad that we got to go through it together as a church. So the question left for us is, what can I possibly say at the end of it? I mean, after Paul gave us so much rich truth, truth that we need, what left is there to say? Well, fortunately, Paul gives us plenty to say with how he closes this book. He ends it very similar to how he starts it. And in so doing, he's going to make a very important point. And that point helps us remember and apply just about everything that he has taught us throughout this letter. So what is the point? It's this. Here's Paul's final point in Romans. Every facet of our Christian life is empowered by God for our salvation. Not some facets. Every facet of our Christian life is empowered by our salvation. Now, Paul's going to show us this with six truths about our salvation. So I figure given that there's six, I decided to write them down for you. Okay, I'm only going to leave this up for a little while to increase your writing speed. But anyhow, so what are the six truths about our salvation? First, God does it. Second, it is according to the gospel. Third, it is according to Christ-centered preaching. Fourth, it's according to the scripture. Fifth, it's according to God's command. And sixth, it results in the obedience of faith. Now, those six things will show how our salvation empowers every facet of the Christian life. Okay, so that's what we will see as we move through the text this morning. So, as I said, we're at the the very end of the book of Romans, and and last week I mentioned that Paul closes this letter out with three things. He gives us a warning, a greeting, and a reminder. And I'll just tell us right now that the reminder is the benediction, okay? The benediction is what he ends the letter with, and in it, he reminds us of so many things about our salvation. I also mentioned last week that in all ancient letters, the author had to close with a greeting, And he had to give like some sort of well-wishing where he wishes health or something upon his audience. Now, Christians replace that health wish with a benediction because a benediction wishes grace and peace from God to the audience, which, by the way, that's eternal life. So that's a lot better than just wishing for your health. That's wishing for eternal life. So anyway, at the end of Romans, now that we're there, we're going to see both of these things. It has a greeting and it has a benediction. Now, the warning, which I talked about last time, was something Paul did not have to put at the end of the book, but he wanted to because of how important the warning was. He warned about false teachers, and so I spent the whole sermon last week just on that. So if you want to catch up with that one, it's on our website or it's on sermonaudio.com. But this morning, now we're going to do the greeting, and we're going to do the benediction, and we will finish Romans with these. We're going to look at these two things that had to be at the end of the letter this greeting and this benediction. Now, just telling you, I'm going to go through the greeting as quickly as I can because the point of the text is actually found in the benediction. So I want to get there as fast as I can. So let's look at this greeting. Only problem is he gives a pretty big greeting here. So let's look at the greeting. Look at verse 21. Paul writes this. He says, Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. Now, if you notice, Paul mentions four people here. He'll mention three more people in the next verse. So these are people who are with him as he's greeting the Roman church. Now, it would naturally be assumed by the audience he's writing to that if these guys are greeting him with Paul, Paul's greeting them as well. So that's why he doesn't have to mention, I, Paul, am greeting you. It's assumed within these other greetings. 
And this greeting where he mentions these people shows us something that I mentioned two sermons ago. Namely, that Paul's labors were never in isolation. Paul the apostle and just about everything he did had help. And so in this case, he has a solid group of workers who are with him as he's writing the book of Romans. And so the first one is probably the one we all know about, Timothy. Okay? Timothy was Paul's most faithful disciple. His mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek, but his mother and his grandmother raised him on the Old Testament scriptures, and so he knew the God of Israel, and when Paul came to his hometown, Lystra, for the first time and planted a church, Timothy received the Messiah, he received Christ. And then, not long after, he witnessed Paul be stoned and left for dead. The town, those townspeople tried to kill Paul. Now, if you just became a Christian, and you saw the guy who brought you to the Lord get stoned and then left for dead... You might be thinking, I don't know about this Christianity stuff. But Timothy was not discouraged at all. When Paul comes back the next time to that town, Timothy joins him and becomes his number one disciple. And so what Paul did is he took the role of spiritual father and he circumcised Timothy. His Jewish background required that. And the fact that he and Paul were going to minister to a lot of Jews, they would not hear anything Timothy had to say if this man with a Jewish mother was not circumcised. Okay, so Paul took care of that for Timothy, um, and he really taught Timothy everything he knew. This passage really sums it up. In 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says this to his young disciple. He says, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. In other words, Paul's saying, like, you've done everything that I've taught you. You're following the example that I left you. And so whenever Paul needed to send a representative to his churches to build them up or fix things that started going wrong, he often sent Timothy. He told the Philippians uh, in chapter 2 of Philippians that he's going to send Timothy to them because he says, I have no one else like him. And then when the church of Ephesus starts to fall apart long after Romans is written, uh, Paul's going to send Timothy to, to help fix the problems. And so that is the Timothy that is with Paul as he's writing Romans, greeting these Romans, and he's going to continue with Paul on the next leg of his mission. So that's Timothy. Next, Paul mentions Lucius. We really don't know anything about this guy because he's not mentioned anywhere else unless this is Luke. It's possible because Luke is a Greek name, but the Latin version of it would be Lucius. Okay, So it's possible, and we do know from the book of Acts that Luke was with Paul during this time. So maybe this is the guy who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, but we don't know for sure. Next is Jason. He is likely the same man that you see in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. He let Paul plant that city's church in his home. And then when persecution came, he helped Paul escape that persecution. So that is likely the same Jason. Next, I struggle with this name, Sosipater. Okay, I got it right that time. It's Sosipater. Now, we don't know much about him. We only have this verse and then Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where he's mentioned. And so what we know from Acts is he was with Paul during this time, which makes sense. Paul's listing him here. And he was a Berean, right? So when you're reading the book of Acts and it tells you that the Bereans were more noble-minded than these other folks because they checked the scriptures daily, this is one of those guys, that was checking the scriptures daily. So if anybody ever asks you on who wants to be a millionaire, name one Berean, you just say Sosipater, and you'll be rich. Right? So anyhow, Paul calls these three his fellow countrymen, which means they were Jews. And that's why some people will say Lucius can't be Luke because they assume Luke was a Gentile. But the New Testament doesn't tell us that. It's assumed because 
Luke joined Paul in Philippi, and there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, so people think, well, he couldn't have been Jewish, but that's by no means definitive, right? What we do know about Luke is he knew the Old Testament scriptures masterfully, so he might have been a Jew, and if Luke and Lucius are the same guy, then he is a Jew. Now, you might be saying, why is this important? It's not, so we're moving on. Just saying that people argue about this stuff. The commentaries will develop, devote a couple pages to it. I shall not. Um, so next, in verse 22, we're introduced to Tertius. Um, and he actually direct, he directly speaks and writes here. He says in verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, some of you might be thinking, Okay, wait a second. I thought Paul wrote the book of Romans, yet right here, some guy named Tertius inserts himself and says, I wrote the letter. What's going on here? Well, it's not a big deal. First, if you remember back to the very first verse of this book, Paul makes it clear that he is the author. So what's going on here? Back then, the author would have a scribe who would write what the author dictated. So the author would speak word for word, and the scribe would write it. The scribe was called an amanuensis. This was so common of a thing, they had a name for it. So it's kind of like if I'm talking into my phone, you know how you could press the little microphone button and it takes your dictation? My phone is not the author. They are my words. My phone is only the author when it messes it up, okay? But otherwise, I'm the author as I'm speaking it. Well, it's the same thing. Paul is the one speaking. These are his words, but Tertius is writing them down. This is very much like Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He would dictate word for word, and his scribe Baruch would write it down. Now, if you pay close attention to Paul's letters, he always gives hints at the ends of the letter that somebody else wrote it, and then he kind of comes in at the end and gives you the signal that, hey, look at my big handwriting. This is now me writing it, or whatever. So we know that he uses these kind of scribes. He never tells us who they are, this, except in this case. This is where the scribe says, hey, I'm saying hi to my name's Tertius. And that's all we really know about him, okay? Now, there is one exhortation that I could offer you from the fact that Paul dictated to a scribe. That means the word of God is not only meant to be read, but it's meant to be heard. It was spoken before it was written, okay? And ultimately, according to chapter 10, faith comes by what? Hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing. And so I think all of us would do better at times if we read our Bibles out loud so we hear it. Okay, the written words, the words that Paul wrote in Romans were meant to be read out loud to the church that received that letter. Okay, so if you want to get the word into your mind more, hear it with your ears. Don't only read it with your mind. I mean, you should read it, but also hear it with your ears. There's an easy way you could make this a habit. You could, when you're driving, listen to one chapter a day on your audio Bible. It will only take five minutes. You might be saying, I don't have an audio Bible. If you have a smartphone, you have an audio Bible. Because if you have the ESV app or the CSB app, at the bottom there's this little play button, and it will read it for you. And it's not like Siri or a robot. They paid real people to read these things. And they actually read them pretty well. That's how I figured out how to say... uh, Sosipater. <laughs> I had to listen. I had to listen 10 times to figure out how to say that name. So, so anyhow, um, yeah, listen to the Bible more. Listen to it more. Get the words in your head, okay? And, and, and it's all at our fingertips, okay? Now, anyway, getting back to this greeting in verse 23, it concludes with three more names. Paul writes this. He says, Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. 
Now, Gaius is going to be the same Gaius that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. The fact that he has a house and he hosts Paul um, and the whole church there means he was a guy of some wealth. And we can assume he would put large missionary teams up in his home and keep them there as long as he needs to. Acts chapter 20, verse 3 tells us that Paul, where he's at right now, he's there three months. So this guy put him up and his team for three months, right? So what that lets us know is this guy was extremely generous, um, very hospitable, and he made sure that Paul's team was taken care of, and he greets the Romans with Paul. Next, Paul mentions Erastus, the city treasurer. This guy apparently was a big shot. He's the city treasurer. He was a government official in the city of Corinth, and he was a believer, Now, what's interesting is archaeologists discovered an inscription that dates to this time in Corinth where Erastus is named by name. And it tells us that Erastus, with his own money, paid to have this theater paved for us. Now, you might say, well, how do you know it's the same guy? This was not a common name in Corinth. And so here we have an Erastus who's the city treasurer. There you have an Erastus who pays to get some things done, like public work projects in the city. So what that tells you believe it or not, is politicians with money can be faithful believers. I know it's rare, okay, but it can happen. And there's one that's mentioned in the scriptures right here. And then finally, Paul finishes with Cortus, and we don't know anything about him other than he's a brother in the Lord, he's with Paul, and he's greeting the Romans. So that's the greeting. And as I wrap up the greeting, let me just remind us that it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains us in righteousness just as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, all scripture must do, right? So what does this greeting teach us? First, customs and courtesies matter. Okay, Paul went out of his way to do the things that that culture expects when it comes to saying hi and bye. You can't just blow those off and say, well, this was a cultural thing. No, they matter. That shows people that you care about them, right? And so greet each other and be happy to do so. Second, What this teaches us is whatever ministry you are doing, do not do it alone. Build a team or join a team, but be part of a team that co-labors in the ministry. Now, what does this text rebuke? What does it teach us how not to think, right? It rebukes the idea of doing ministry all by yourself. It rebukes the idea that you're better off working alone for the Lord. You're not. Okay, how does this text correct our bad behavior and train us in righteousness or good behavior? Well, simply put, don't run a ministry in a way where you're indispensable, where if you get sick, the ministry shuts down, or if you move, the ministry shuts down. No, rather than being indispensable, build a team so that it can run with or without you. Those are little nuggets you could extract from a simple greeting, okay? But with the greeting done, we can now move to the benediction where the actual point of the text is. And here is where we will see every facet of the Christian life is empowered by our salvation. And we're going to see that because of these six truths about our salvation that the benediction will make clear. Now, I already said that a benediction is where the author offers a prayer wish where God will give grace and peace to the audience. Every bened- like Paul ends every letter with the benediction. Sometimes he'll throw them in the middle of the letter, right? And then he'll throw them at the end as well. All of his benedictions are different. No two are alike. And I think this one is packed way heavier than a lot of his other ones. Kind of like the rest of Romans. Romans is packed heavier than Paul's other letters. So it makes sense that his benediction will be heavily packed as well. Rather than just wishing grace and peace, 
He's going to spell out what that means with these six truths. And, and, and that's what's going to make this benediction such an awesome reminder about our salvation. Now, remember, I said the main point of our text is every facet of our Christian life is empowered by our salvation. And I want that every part to be proven to us before we even get into the text. Okay? This benediction is a parallel to what he writes in the first seven verses of the book. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, covers the same kind of things that this benediction at the end covers. There's a couple new emphases, but it's the same things. And so what you have is the book's opening, and you have the book's end. The opening and the benediction are like bookends. That's on purpose. Okay, He ends it similar to how he starts it, so he could emphasize everything that's in between. Okay, everything that's between the front cover and the back cover of the book, between the opening and the close. So I want you to think about it. Think about everything he has talked about between the book's opening and its close. He talked about his plans to plant churches in Spain. He talked about the universal fallenness of man. He talked about the salvation of God being found only in Jesus. He talked about the radically transformed life that salvation will produce in us. He talked about our need to pursue unity and love within the church body. He talked about the call for every Christian to serve to their full capacity. And last time, he talked about, he gave a warning, telling us we're in a spiritual war and we need to keep our guards up. Now, everything I just mentioned there that's in between these two bookends, that is every facet of the Christian life. Think about it. Paul is talking about his plans. Well, like Paul, we're to be planning our ministry out for the future, and at the same time, we're to be faithfully executing our ministry in the present. That's a big facet of your Christian life, your ministry. He also right, told us throughout the book how we were once fallen. We were fallen, and we were saved by the gospel. Therefore, we need to understand the fallenness of man and how the work of Christ overcomes that. We need to understand how people could be saved. We need to understand that the problem runs deep, especially the problem of sin. It goes all the way back to Adam, and it actually makes people slaves, okay? We have to understand how salvation changes that, and then how the Holy Spirit works in our lives both before and after we're saved. We need to understand the grand plan of God and where the future is going. So in other words, I bring all that up because Paul talked about all that in the book, Our growth in Christian doctrine is a huge part of the Christian life. You will not grow in your Christian life if you're not growing in your Christian doctrine, okay? But you don't learn all this overnight. It takes a long time of studying to learn all these things. Now, the book of Romans gave some wonderful summaries of a lot of it, but we all need to be digging in the gospel more so we could tell the lost about the only way of salvation. So my point with that is you learning doctrine is a huge facet of the Christian life. So you doing ministry is a facet. You learning doctrine is a huge facet. We're also called to serve Christ for the rest of our lives. I mean, think about what chapter 12 said. We are living sacrifices. And we've been given gifts from the Holy Spirit to serve the local church and the Great Commission. That's a huge facet of your Christian life. We're also called to love each other and sacrifice our preferences for the sake of unity. Let me tell you something. That's not easy. That takes work. That takes maturity. That takes really learning to love others like Jesus loves us. And so that too, learning to love each other, is a huge facet of your Christian life. And then finally, as we saw last time, you are in a war between light and darkness. Satan has the entire world in opposition to the gospel, and yet you've been commanded to take that gospel to the entire world. 
So think about that. He has them in opposition to it, but you're supposed to take it to them nevertheless. Additionally, to try to shipwreck our ability to do that, Satan sends his agents as false teachers into the churches like ours. He sends them into the lives of believers in an attempt to shipwreck their faith. So, standing firm on the gospel, rebuking those that contradict God's word, and always having a defense for the hope that is in you, that is a huge facet of the Christian life. I mean, we're in a spiritual war. Waging that war is a big part of our life. There's no escaping that. Protecting our families and our church from the lies of the world is a major responsibility that we all have, and it takes a lot of effort. So, if you think about everything I just said, these are the main facets of the Christian life, and these are what the book of Romans has been teaching us about. This letter has called on us to live these things out faithfully. So how can we do it? How can we do all this faithfully? You might be thinking, there's so much to being a Christian. Thanks for reminding me of it all. You know, you might be angry at me. And you might be thinking, didn't Jesus say my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Yes, But the reason his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because he gives you the Holy Spirit, who then gives you the spiritual equivalent of the strength of Samson so that you could carry that yoke and so you could carry that burden. You could lift the yoke and carry the burden. That's my point. It's light because of the empowerment that he gives us. But we're still responsible for all these things that the book of Romans teaches us. And so after Paul's covered all this stuff, it makes sense that he's going to close with the benediction that reminds us of our salvation And shows us how this salvation gives us everything we need to do all that the Lord has called us to do. It it just does. And so as I said earlier, there are six truths. I'll put them back up here for a second. Six truths about our salvation that prove it empowers every facet of our lives. The first truth about your salvation is that God does it. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. We're going to see that in verse 25. But for you who are careful... And pay attention. You you might be looking at your Bible and say, wait a second, something isn't right here. We're going from verse 23 to 25. And then you're looking, there's no 24. It's been deleted, right? And you might be in a crisis of faith right now. And although I'm tempted to just say nothing, like maybe they won't notice, and then I just move on, not going to do that. Here's what happened. The King James translation, which was made about 400 years ago, was using a manuscript that's not as old as the ones we have now. And a a, a scribe made a mistake and put the end of verse 20 twice. Okay, so verse 20 ends by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, right? And then some scribe wrote that in verse 20 where it should have been and then accidentally wrote it again in between 23 and 25. And so the King James put it there. But then as we found older manuscripts, we're like, oh, we see what happened. That guy just accidentally wrote it twice. So our modern translations remove it, but they put a footnote at the bottom of your Bible telling you what I just told you, right? And so with that... No more needs to be said on that, okay? So we're, we get to skip a verse because it's not really there. So we're moving from verse 23 to verse 25. And again, it shows us the first truth of our salvation is that God does it. That's right. God is the one that saves you. Look at the first few words of verse 25. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Who's the him? Well, here's a hint. Look at the beginning of verse 27. He tells us who the hymn is. Okay, the hymn is to the only wise God. So put those together. Paul is saying now to the only wise God who is able to strengthen you. Now, this word able is the word dunamai. Okay, it means power. It means ability. 1,800 years later, they took this word and turned it into dynamite. Okay, because again, power. 
right? So God has the infinite power and ability to do whatever he has decreed that he would do. Now, we already saw back in chapter 8 that God decreed you would make it to the end, okay? He said you would make it to the end that nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is able to do that, and he will do that for the true believer. He has the power. He is able. Now, able to do what? Paul says to him who is able to, quote, strengthen you. This word strengthen means to support you, to hold you up, to keep you strong and on your feet. It makes me think of those supplements where, like, you put the supplement in your water and it replaces the electrolytes and all the vitamins you sweat out. And so it restores you. Same kind of thing. Imagine walking all day to the point of exhaustion and then God zaps your legs and now they're as good as they were when you woke up. He keeps you on your feet. He keeps you standing. That's what this word pictures. The Christian life is hard. Sometimes we feel like throwing in the towel. If you've never felt that way, then I dare say you're probably not living the Christian life. But if you are, it's hard and you feel like throwing in the towel. But why don't you? Why do we never actually throw in the towel? Because God never lets us get to that point. Sometimes he will test our strength by letting us get close to that point, but then he fills you back up and rejuvenates you, and you're ready to go even more tenacious than you were before. See, God strengthening you means at least two things biblically, not just holding you up, but biblically speaking, it means more than that. First, it means saving you. It means saving you. God is the one who saves you. God is the one who saved you when he elected you in eternity past. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And then Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, that those God foreknew, he predestined. Predestined what? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's salvation, right? So God foreknew you, he foreloved you, he predestined you, and then it tells us he called you. And him calling you gave you the ability and the new life to answer the call. Because the Bible says we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says when we were dead in our trespasses. You could call to a corpse all day long. It won't answer. Right? And so for God to call us and for us to come, that very call had to give us the life we needed to be able to answer that call. That is strength. That is strength, okay? And so God empowers you with his call to answer the call. You then believe, and you answer the call. And then he tells you in that passage, Romans 8.30, that you were justified, right? Meaning you were declared righteous by God because he gives you the credit of Jesus' righteousness. I'll talk more about that. Uh, You know, and Paul in chapter 1, verse 17 says, this is the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes, It's where God imputes his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to us from faith to faith. Now, at the same time, justification means righteousness from God. It also means forgiveness of our sins because Jesus paid our debt. He was the mercy seat. He was the propitiation. Big words, right? But these are words that are in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. What it means is because you're a sinner, God's wrath is supposed to come for you. But Jesus said, I'll take it on myself. His wrath is turned away from you and put on Jesus instead. And because of that, your sins could be wiped clean. They could be expiated. That's the the technical term, right? And not only does God do that, he takes you out of Adam and he he unites you with Christ. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. God takes you out of slavery to sin. 
And he makes you free. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 7. This is how he strengthens you, loved ones. To him who is able to strengthen you. He strengthens you by saving you, by forgiving you, by empowering you, by giving you the spirit, by cleansing you, all that stuff. You were as weak as weakness could possibly be because you were dead spiritually. And yet God granted you life and salvation. So to him who is able to do that, who is able to strengthen you. Now, he doesn't just leave you there and breathe that new life into you. The second thing it means for God to strengthen us is he makes sure we will finish the race. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It talks about him sustaining us. He gives us the Holy Spirit according to chapter 8. And then the Spirit gets us through this wilderness, this wilderness that's called the present evil age. Okay? He even tells us our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory we will get in the perfect age to come. And that is where the Holy Spirit is leading us to. And chapter 8 ends by saying nothing could separate us from the love of God. We will make it there. So, again, salvation empowers every facet of your Christian life. And, and the first truth about your salvation in our text is God is the one who does this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. God, the only wise God who is able, powerful, he is the one who saves us and sustains us. We can do what we are called to do because God saves and strengthens us. And so what an amazing God. Now the second truth, okay, goes beyond just the fact that God saves us. That's great, right? God saves us, but how does he save us? The second truth is he saves us according to the gospel. So look at verse 25 again. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, when Paul says my gospel, he means the gospel, right? His gospel is the gospel. And so the word gospel, evangelion, means the good news. Well, good news of what? This goes back to the first few chapters of Romans. Chapter 1 concluded that all the nations, every single nation, every single kind of person from those nations is guilty of sin, and therefore the wrath of God is coming. Now, the Jews would have read that, and they would have readily agreed. But then you get to chapter 2, and Paul says, the wrath of God is coming for you as well. And then the Jews would be like, impossible. We have the Torah. We have the law. Paul's going to say, yes, but you broke the law. They'd be like, yeah, but we got the animal sacrifice system. He'll be like, not no more. That was a double negative. Not anymore. Okay? You don't have it anymore because Jesus is the one who it all pointed to. And he came, and he was the sacrifice once and for all to forever remove sins. And so apart from Christ, there is no sacrifice in the temple that is going to remove your law-breaking anymore. So now both Jew and Gentile have the exact same problem. They have sinned. And even one sin makes you guilty before the almighty and righteous judge of the universe. And that's God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul made it clear. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, all deserve the eternal judgment and wrath of God. That's bad news. In fact, that's the worst news imaginable because there is nothing you can do on your own to make your guilt disappear. But that is where the good news of Jesus comes in. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, entered his own creation as a man. Chapter 1, verse 4 says he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He came in the house of David, of the royal line, in the flesh, in order to succeed where we all failed. He obeyed the law of God perfectly for his whole life, and therefore as a man, he earned eternal life. 
But then he went to the cross as if he was guilty of every sin we committed. Because cursed is the man who is nailed to a tree or to a cross, right? Even though he's not cursed, he identified with us and became cursed and took all of our sin upon himself. And so as he was on that cross, the father poured his wrath on Jesus. What we would have gotten hell was completely poured on Jesus as that sky went dark. In an invisible way, hell was poured on Jesus, and he absorbed it all until he paid for every last one of our sins, we who believe on him. He died for our sins, and that is why the sins of those who are in Christ are forgiven, because he paid our debt. But that's not all. This one who was a descendant of David in the flesh rose also, according to chapter 1, verse 4, as the Son of God. He was appointed as the Son of God in power by the spirit of holiness, right? And so Jesus is now the invincible God-man who lives forever at the right hand of the Father with all authority over heaven and earth, and he lives there to make intercession for us. And because he lives, he is able, because he's alive, to give us the credit of his righteousness. And so that's why chapter 4, verse 25 says, he was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning our sins taken care of by his death. But then it says, and raised for our justification. Our righteousness is taken care of by his life, right? So he is alive to dispense his righteous record to us. His death removed the spot of sin from our record. His resurrection imputes his perfect record into our record. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the good news, So God saves us, but the gospel is how God saves us. And it's important to understand that because as great as it is that God saves us, it does beg the question, how? How can this God save us? Well, you know, when you think about it, God declared his nature back to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And I find this fascinating, what God says about himself. He says the Lord, or in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. He says Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, if you read over that fast, you're going to miss the problem. I mean, did you catch it? God is gracious, slow to anger. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Three different ways to say sin, right? He forgives it. But then he says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. If you've committed iniquity, rebellion, and sin, you're guilty. How does he forgive that? Okay, how can he forgive that but then not leave the guilty unpunished? That's a tough question, right? A righteous judge does not let criminals go free. The debt of their crime has to be paid. There must be punishment. Well, Jesus, the Messiah, is the answer to this dilemma. God himself enters his own creation as a man to take the punishment for us. By identifying with us in our place, our guilt was punished on him. So now that the debt is paid, God can be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and he can forgive our iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That is why the gospel is really, really good news. Okay? And this gospel salvation then makes us clean. It cleanses us. It makes us useful to God for service. And so by the gospel saving us and cleansing us, It, too, empowers every facet of the Christian life. In fact, when you think about what the gospel is, God's love for us, God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, 
that whoever believes on him will have eternal life, that Jesus came and sacrificed himself for us. So love is sacrifice, it's giving. And, and, and that great act of love is how we're saved. If you think about that, if you really internalize the gospel, it teaches you how to live sacrificially and how to love others by imitating our Lord. That teaches us how to be good spouses and good parents and good church members and good neighbors and so on. And so what a gift the gospel truly is. It is the gift of eternal life that empowers us to live on point for God. And Paul made it clear that this gift of eternal life, he tells us it's received by faith. It's always been that way. And that's why chapter 4 is in the book of Romans. He goes all the way back to the patriarch Abraham, to whom the covenant was first made. And Abraham was justified by faith. And therefore, it is the same for us. When you believe, when you turn away from your sins and you trust Christ for salvation, then you are justified. You are declared righteous by God through Jesus' righteousness, and you're declared forgiven since he paid your price on the cross. That is how God saves us. So then, that is the second truth about our salvation. Okay, first, God saves us. Second, he saves us according to the gospel. But that begs a question. Where do we learn about the gospel so that we may receive the salvation that God gives? Well, the third truth answers that. Our salvation comes from Christ-centered preaching. Okay, so our salvation comes from Christ-centered preaching. So let's keep reading verse 25. Again, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ. So the third truth is that the gospel comes to us through, quote, the proclamation about Jesus Christ. Now, this word proclamation is the regular New Testament word for teaching. It's the word kerygma. This word means to make a proclamation of a herald. Now, we don't really have heralds anymore too much. And so I have to kind of explain what this means. And there's people named herald. This is a different word. Okay. A herald in the ancient word. In the ancient world, uh, you, you have these guys called heralds. And so you would have a mighty king. The mighty king would send a message to those either inside the kingdom or outside the kingdom. But he would send the message through the mouth of a herald. Okay, this is a messenger. This is a person that the king would give his exact words to and tell him, you proclaim these words to whatever audience I send it to you. And a faithful herald simply stated the king's message. He knew the message so well, and he knew the mind of the king so well that he could answer questions that people would ask in light of the message. And the king expected the words of the herald to be obeyed. To disregard the herald was to disregard the king because it's the king's words coming out of the herald's mouth. To reject the herald's message was to reject the king's message. To attack the herald physically was seen as attacking the king himself, which makes sense why Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul was persecuting Christ's heralds, Christ is like, no, you're persecuting me. Okay, same kind of thing. Now, if a herald was faithless, he would change the king's message to make it more acceptable to the audience. He would tell them what they want to hear. If the king found out, he would judge that herald. And additionally, the fools who believed that herald are still going to be held accountable for the king's real message. Right? And so that's why you have to make sure you pick the right kind of heralds. And that's why false teachers are so dangerous. Because they're the faithless heralds. Okay? Leading people astray, straight into judgment. Okay? But because kings wanted trustworthy people, the heralds were usually just that. Trustworthy people that the kings knew very well. They wouldn't just send anybody. 
Now, we take this analogy, because that's what this word kerygma points to. We take this analogy, God is the king of kings. He's the king of the universe. And he has issued a summons to all of sinful humanity. He summons them all from the ends of the earth to turn from their sins and to come to him through his Messiah. And who are his heralds? Y'all, right? He appoints all Christians to be his heralds and to tell the world. When we refuse to speak, we are faithless heralds. We just are. And the people we refuse to tell the good news to, they're still going to be judged for not answering God's summons because they still love their sin. They're guilty of their sin. I think everybody should read Ezekiel chapter 3 more often. God says, you're the watchman. Okay, you warn them. If you warn them and they don't listen, it's on them. If you don't warn them, they're still going to be destroyed, but it's on you as much as it's on them. And I'm going to hold you accountable, Ezekiel. And that's just an interesting aspect of being a herald. We have to tell people, listen, the reason you are saved is because a herald was faithful. Think about that. Someone told you the summons of the king, maybe more than once. And so that favor needs to be returned. And here's the thing. A herald comes. We answer the summons. But that's not the end of it. We still need to hear from our king. When we come to the Lord, we are now citizens of his kingdom. We now got to know more about our king. We got to know what it, what it means to live as a subject of his kingdom. So then what he does is he raises up within his church uh, or specially gifted heralds to continue to speak his words to his people so his people could grow and live in conformity with his kingdom standards. Those heralds are pastors, right? And those heralds don't have the right to tweak the message and make it more palatable to a lazy people. They can't do that. They must declare what God has declared. And where has God given us his word that must be declared? The Bible. We don't make it up. He gives it to us in the Bible. Okay, that is why here at Sovereign Way, we preach expositionally. We go chapter by chapter so that we can't skip the hard stuff. You think I really wanted to teach on Romans 7? That one was hard, especially the second half of it. But we can't skip the hard stuff. Also, we, we aim to make the point of the sermon to be the same as the point of the text that we're preaching. Because believers need that. Believers need to hear from God. See, the word of God preached helps us know our God better. It teaches us what he's like. It teaches us how to live or walk in a way that pleases him. It teaches us how to be good Christians, good husbands, good wives, good children, good parents, good church members, good neighbors. It teaches us all that. That's where we learn it. We don't learn it from anywhere else. Okay? But that preaching will ultimately fall short if it is not Christ-centered. Notice what Paul calls it. Look at the text again. It is the proclamation about Jesus Christ. All scripture in some way relates to Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. All the scripture in some way is about the Messiah. It either points to him or flows out from him. Messiah Jesus shows us who God is and what God is like. Messiah Jesus teaches us how to live in a way that pleases God. Messiah Jesus teaches us how to be good Christians, good husbands, good wives, good children, good parents, good church members, and good neighbor because he was good in all of his relationships, okay? Especially just perfectly faithful before the Father. So remember, the point of the text 
that we're going over this morning is that every facet of our Christian life is empowered by our salvation. And our text is giving us six truths about that salvation. We've seen that God is the one who saves you through the gospel, but it comes through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then once you are a believer, it's the word of God consistently proclaimed to you that will grow you in Christ and it will enhance and inform every facet of your Christian life. It will enhance your planning of ministry. It will enhance your faithful execution of the ministry. It will help you in your, it'll help in your understanding of the gospel. It will help you in your transformed life, your pursuit of love and unity in the church, your service, and your ability to withstand the spiritual war. All of that depends on the word of God being faithfully preached to you week in and week out. That is why at this church, okay, this is a church where the preaching is central. The other parts of our worship service are extremely important, but it's the Christ-centered preaching that is the high point because it is part of that salvation that empowers every facet of the Christian life. Okay, It is the means that God uses to save us and grow us and to keep us. Okay, So faithful, Christ-centered preaching will always do a number of things. It will explain the biblical text. It will use the text to teach, correct, or teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness, and it will point you to Christ. But if preaching is going to be kerygma, real biblical preaching, real heraldry, if you will, there's a fourth part. It always must summon unbelievers to repent and believe. Okay? A sermon that leaves out that fourth part isn't actually a Christian sermon. It's a lecture with some exhortation in it. For it to be kerygma, it has to have all four of those. And that's why a lot of what passes for preaching out there is just motivational cotton candy messages that make you fat but not healthy. Okay? That's, that's all they do, spiritually speaking. Okay? Preaching that helps empower every facet of your Christian life is, again, going to explain biblical text. It's going to teach, rebuke, correct, train you in righteousness. It'll point you to Jesus, and it will summon unbelievers to repent and believe. Okay? Now, I did kind of get ahead of myself here by saying Christ-centered preaching comes from the Bible because that's the fourth truth about our salvation. If God is the one who saves us and he does so through the gospel that comes to us through the preaching of Christ, then that begs the question of where does the preaching of Christ come from? And again, the answer is the scripture. So the fourth truth about our salvation is it is according to scripture. And so let's look at the rest of verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. Paul writes this. He says, it's according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. Now, there are two different words that Paul uses for scripture here. First, he calls it revelation, and then he calls it the prophetic scriptures. The first is general, the other is specific, meaning God giving a message is revelation. Okay, that's what it is. But what was the form of that revelation? Scripture. That is how God reveals himself, especially to his people, through the prophetic scriptures, which refers to the Bible. And that is important for us to know, because there's a lot of people out there trying to say that God told them this, or God told them that, but God has specially revealed himself to us through the scriptures. Okay, the Bible is where you're going to find the gospel. The Bible is where you're going to find the preached word. And most importantly, this is where you're going to find Jesus Christ. So when people like are following their own little thoughts and thinking it's God talking to them, I encourage them, ground yourself on where he really talks to us, the scriptures. Now, but now the Holy Spirit does lead us, but that's different than him revealing stuff to us. The revelation is here in the word of God. Now, the way Paul describes scripture here is fascinating. On the one hand, he says it is a mystery 
kept silent for long ages that is now revealed. But then on the other hand, he says it's made known through the prophetic scriptures. Now, right away, that should pose a question mark. The prophetic scriptures have been in Israel long before Paul wrote this. Yet he's saying this was a mystery kept hidden for the long ages. Only now it's been revealed. Well, where do you find it? In the old prophetic scriptures. So in what sense is it hidden and revealed now if it's been in the scriptures all along? Well, this word mystery helps us understand that. This word mystery or mysterion in the New Testament, it refers to something that God hid within the word of God itself. And then a later revelation from God would make it visible for all to see, at least all who have eyes to see. And so given that's what a mystery is, it had to be in the prophetic scriptures. It had to be in the Old Testament. But its meaning did not become clear until the coming of Christ. It's kind of like reading a mystery novel. All the pieces are there as you're reading it, but the reader absolutely cannot put it together until the key is given. We often call the key the twist. At the end, you get the twist. That's really the key that ties it all together. And then when you go back and read it a second time, it all becomes obvious. I think a few sermons ago, more than a few sermons ago, I brought up the perfect movie example of a mystery in the sixth sense. And so I'm going to spoil it again because it is such a good example. And it's been over 20-something years, 1999. If you haven't seen it yet, I have no guilt for spoiling this. Okay, so... The main character is a children's psychologist, right, Bruce Willis. He's a, he's a children's psychologist that's helping this little boy that sees dead people. And you have no idea as you're watching it that the main character is also dead. And that's why the boy could see him. Instead, you think he's just a normal, alive children's psychologist that's helping this boy. But then at the end, you get the twist, right? You get the key that, wait, he's been dead the whole time. And then you're like, my mind is blown. He's dead the whole time. How did I not realize this? Well, it's by design. It's by design. It was designed that you wouldn't realize it. But once you have the key or the twist, you go back and watch it again. And the second time, every clue becomes obvious. You're like, oh, my gosh, it's there, 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 there. And, and you start to see it everywhere, okay? Well, that's similar to what Paul is saying here. It was in the Old Testament all along, but it was a mystery. The people of the past had pieces, but they couldn't put it all together. But then Jesus comes, right? He's the key. His work and his person shines a light on the whole thing. And now when you go back and you read the Old Testament, you see it everywhere. That's how the prophetic scriptures contained it, and yet it was a mystery hidden for the long ages or silent for the long ages. And so the mystery, if you think about it, it's like, how does Christ bring this all to light? The mystery is that Jesus, he explains the animal sacrifices. You read that in the Old Testament, you're like, why is this there? He explains it. The need for atonement, it was all about him. Jesus shows how Israel would be saved. Jesus shows how the nations would be ingathered into Israel as equals. Jesus shows how the two actually become one body. And this is what God meant by blessing the nations through Abraham's seed. Jesus shows us that for this to occur, Israel needs to reject their Messiah first so that it goes to the nations. And then once the nations come to salvation, the hard heart will be lifted and Israel will also receive her Messiah. And then the resurrection of the dead comes. All of this is the mystery that Jesus shines the light on. Jesus also shows us that the perfect age to come, it doesn't appear all at once. It comes in part in stages because the Messiah, his work was done in part. But when he comes the second time in his glory, that's when it will all be consummated. Every aspect of the perfect age comes when Jesus comes back. There's a lot of passages in the New Testament that talk about the mystery. My favorite is Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. You want to know why? Because it boils it all down. 
it says the mystery is Christ. Right? So Paul talks about these other parts being the mystery, but ultimately there he says Christ is the mystery. He's the key. He's the twist that makes it all make sense. He unlocks it all. So it is the scripture itself that shows you Christ. Christ then shows you the full plan of God, the gospel. And this part of your salvation then empowers every facet of your Christian life because now you realize you are part of an amazing and gigantic story and you have a part to play in the story. You have a part to play in the story of Scripture. Okay, You are part of the mystery. You have been called in the mystery to minister in Christ's body until the good news reaches every nation. And then Jesus will return. So he gives you, since that's your part within the mystery, he gives you everything you need to fulfill your mission. And he teaches you it through the scriptures. Okay? And so the scriptures remind you of this. The scriptures embolden you to serve your Lord more boldly. Well, there are only two more truths about your salvation and how it empowers every facet of your Christian life. And these ones go pretty, pretty fast. And so the fifth truth is that your salvation is actually the command of God. It is the command of God. He's the one who, who does it, okay? And so after verse 26, after it talks about our salvation being made known through the scriptures, it then continues by saying this. It says, according to the command of the eternal God. Our salvation, your salvation, is actually God's command. He's the one who saves us. He ordained it would be through, by the gospel, through the preaching, according to the scriptures, and then ultimately according to his very command. It means he decreed your salvation. He commanded your salvation. And why would Paul put the word eternal in front of God right here? To emphasize when this command came. This command came in eternity past. God was not just waiting around to see what people would do. He commanded our salvation. He wrote our names in the book before the world was even made. Okay, and so Paul's emphasizing the eternality of this because it's the eternal God that has commanded our salvation. This command to save was not plan B. It wasn't a reaction to what the devil did or what we did. This was God's command all along. And that then brings us to the final truth. The command of God actually leads to the very thing it commands, salvation. The sixth truth about our salvation is that salvation results or the command results in the obedience of faith. That's what it results in. It results in the the obedience of faith. And so the rest of verse 26, and the rest of verse 26, Paul says, it's according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. So God's very command that we would be saved, it results in salvation. This goes back to Augustine's famous prayer where he said, God, command what you will, but give what you command. In other words, God, you've commanded that we we repent Grant the repentance to us so that we can repent. God, you've commanded that we serve. Give us the Holy Spirit so we could serve. So give, command what you will, but give what you command, right? Your command needs to produce the very thing you're commanding. And, and this is one more truth about your salvation that empowers every facet of your Christian life. Whatever you have been called to do is according to God's command. God's eternal, unshakable, unchangeable command He commanded you to be saved. That's why you're saved, right? That commanded salvation is in his hands, not yours. Therefore, you're going to be all right. You're going to make it to the end. 
And, and you're going to make it to the end because his command of your salvation, the very command was your obedience of faith. It was to advance your obedience of faith. Obedience of faith just means your conversion. You turn away from the sin and you obediently come to him in faith. The point is, your salvation is all from him, to him, and for him. He commands it. He gives it. And so what that means is you can just serve him faithfully with that in mind. Now, Paul specifies that the salvation is beyond just you. I like to share that, that quote I heard once that the gospel, the gospel came to you when it was on its way to somebody else. And that's exactly, exactly how it works, right? You're saved, but you're not the terminal point of the story, right? God's command is to advance the obedience of faith among who? Among all the Gentiles, all the nations. That means that the salvation that God does by the gospel through preaching Christ according to the scriptures, according to God's command, will bring about the salvation from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And since he commands it, it will happen because just look at Revelation 7. John gets a glimpse of the end and what does he see? Every nation, tribe, and tongue before the throne of God. Okay, So the result is guaranteed by the command. So not only were we saved by all of this, but God promises people from, that the, the people from all nations will be saved. That empowers the work you do for Christ. That empowers the work you do for the Great Commission. That empowers your evangelism when you go out and, and share the gospel with your coworkers and family members and so forth. God is the one who's in charge of the results. Just be faithful. He will bring about the result he commanded. Serve him faithfully. Do everything for him faithfully because your salvation empowers every facet of your Christian life. Now, Paul closes the benediction in the whole letter with verse 27. He says this. He says, To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so the God who pulled off this salvation we've been talking about, is the only wise God. He is infinitely wise. And who did he do it through? The only wise God through Jesus Christ. The Messiah is the center of it all. It is through him that our salvation comes. The question is, what should be our response? And Pastor Josh was talking about it during the last song. Our response should be doxology. Now, what is doxology? It just means glorifying God with our words and our lives, right? But definitely our words in this case. A doxology is where you just can't contain it anymore. And you have to, you're so thankful for salvation, you have to glorify God. And so Paul closes the most excellent letter he wrote by glorifying the only wise God through Christ. He says this, to him be the glory forever. And all God's people with one voice shall say to that, amen. Well, loved ones, this concludes the book of Romans. It has been a fun two years going through it. I know, I know I've learned a lot, and I pray that you've learned a lot as well. But if we think that Romans was simply meant to increase our head knowledge, then we missed the point of the whole thing. We really did. The benediction in our text summarized the teachings of the whole book, and it could be summed up as what we've said. Every facet of the Christian life is empowered by this magnificent salvation that God has given to us. So in light of that, don't be hearers only. Be hearers that do. Be hearers and doers. Go and serve your king in light of that salvation. Serve him in every way that the book of Romans has taught us. And if there's any unbeliever here, 
You've heard the gospel probably 10 different ways this morning. The gist of it is this. You are in your sin. You've lied before. You've stolen before. You've dishonored your parents. You've lusted in your heart. You've been angry in your heart. All these things are things that God's going to hold you accountable. One day you will stand before the Lord and you're guilty. You can't say Hitler was worse. That's not going to get you off the hook. He's not, he's not comparing you to Hitler. He's comparing you to his perfect standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But hear carefully what was said this morning. There is a way of escape. That God so loved the world that he sent somebody, Jesus, to succeed where you failed, to earn that perfect righteousness and then to take your penalty. If you turn away from your sins and you trust on Jesus with all of your heart, then all of your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the credit of Jesus' righteousness. And then you too will be saved and every facet of your Christian life will be empowered by that salvation and you will make it to the end and eternal life will be yours. So don't walk out of here still in your sins. If you have any questions about this, come talk to me or anybody else, and we'll gladly walk you through this. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then the worship team's going to come up. Before they start in their final song, though, um, we get to have a baptism today. Well, they're going to sing first, but we're going to have a baptism, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So before they start in their song, I'm going to explain those a little bit, um, and then we'll sing one final song, and then we get to celebrate the Lord by the baptism of another soul and the taking of the Lord's Supper. So let's go to our Lord in prayer.